So here's a question. In a world that keeps moving faster and faster, how do women leaders like us, women who want to make an impact in the world through our career or business and not sacrifice our home life, how do we create balance and fulfillment in our lives, both at work and at home, without facing burnout or constantly feeling like we're chasing an impossible dream? That's the question, and this show explores the answers. Welcome to the Selfless Syndrome Show. I'm your host, Dr. Alex Swenson-Ridley, and I'm on a mission to help women leaders break through burnout so that they can build the life and body they are worthy of and step into the awesome power of who they really are. I'm the Selfless Syndrome Mentor, a board-certified women's health and leadership coach and alternative medicine practitioner. I'm a wife, mom, and stepmom to four boys and a furball, and I'm the founder of a rapidly growing women-centered coaching business. Stick around because on this show, you'll learn how to create the life, body, and career you've always dreamed of without having to sacrifice who you really are. Let's go. Hello, welcome back to Emerge, the health podcast for busy, high-performing women. I'm your host, Dr. Alex Swenson-Ridley. I'm really excited to be joined today by Constance Scharf, who is a PhD and internationally recognized speaker and author on the topics of addiction and trauma recovery and mental health. She's the founder of the Institute of Complementary and Indigenous Mental Health Research. Her writing centers around using complementary and contemplative practices to improve treatment outcomes. She's passionate, a passionate advocate for decolonizing mental health care and incorporating indigenous practices and ontologies into healthcare services. So Dr. Sharf or Constance, whatever you prefer, welcome to the show. Either way, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to, um, you know, we were talking earlier about kind of the indigenous side of, of mental health and all that. So sure. we'll dive into that. But before we do that, I'd love to just kind of hear some of your story and your journey and how you got into doing what you do, because it's very important. Yeah, so I uh, come from uh, a lot of early childhood trauma. I was uh, sexually abused from the age of seven through ten. I um, by by a family member. I have amnesia. I have had some pretty extreme uh, PTSD symptoms, um, and people like me generally end up, uh, you know suicides, overdoses. Uh, I just celebrated at the end of June, 24 years of sobriety. So I'm an alcoholic. Um, And I just, there was something in me that had to help other people and myself, because I felt like if I didn't, my dad won. If I died, he won. If I stayed drunk, he won. And so Whatever mental twist that is, that's what spurred me to uh, want to be of service. I uh, didn't initially train for this. Um, I was uh, in nonprofit management. I worked with women and girls a a lot through the Girl Scouts was one of the organizations I worked with. Um, I did a lot of international development. That's what I actually trained for, evaluating different um, development projects primarily for women and girls um, all over the world. And I was in grad school because I realized that, I don't know, I was 31, 32, something like that. I realized that I wasn't going to move up in nonprofit. I was too young. It didn't matter what my achievements were. I was too young. So I needed a master's degree. So I was um, earning a master's in transformative leadership. Mm 
and uh, fully expecting to go back into the nonprofit world. And um, I was seeing people coming, I was attending a 12 step program and I saw people, v, member, uh, people from the VA coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. Remember, I've been sober a long time. Yeah. So uh, I, I was seeing people coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan and they had trauma. And I related to them because I was, I don't know, by this point, eight or nine years sober and um, very depressed, very suicidal, very extreme PTSD symptoms, even though I was still able to you know, go to grad school, but I still had very extreme symptoms. And these individuals were not staying sober and several of them killed themselves. And I got so angry because they were really trying and so was I. And I thought, you know, there has to be something better out there. There has to be better treatment. And so I I was by this point in my PhD program and I, I changed everything that I was doing and uh, look, started looking at the intersection of addiction and trauma and seeing what can we do differently? What kind of treatment is actually available that will help us? Because I, I, I firmly believe that if you step up to the plate to do the work, that it's my responsibility as a professional to be able to support you in that journey. And so that's how I got involved in this. And that's what I do. And I found that there are actually a lot of really good treatments um, available. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, a lot of them aren't covered by insurance. And that's mm-hmm. where the indigenous piece of, of my work comes in. Um, yeah. But yeah, there's a lot of good treatment available. And I'm really excited to share that. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear about it. Um, you know, I, I've talked on the show some, and I didn't share this with you before we started. My first husband, we're divorced now, but um, alcoholic and a lot of, a lot of struggles. So I've kind of walked down that road in a different, you know, there's capacity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, and it's different when it's yourself versus like a family member versus sure. a spouse. So, but, you know, have experience, and I know a lot of women who listen to the show have experience either with a parent or themselves or, you know, whatnot, kind of struggling with that. So I appreciate you just being open and honest about everything, really, because a lot of us also are sitting on trauma, whether it's the capital T version of it or just, you know, being disempowered. I think it's really important that we do talk about it because if... If I don't let you know that I've been there, right? If I don't mm-hmm. let you know that I know what it's like to drink too much and not be able to stop, if I don't let you know that, you know, I know what it's like to be victimized, then I think, you know, as doctors, right? Uh, uh, yeah. That we have a, a, a power differential, right? And there becomes an aloofness and a disconnect. Really, where I made my mark and where I made my name in the uh, in the field is that I tried all these trauma treatments out on myself. I was looking for different kinds of treatments that have very limited to no side effects. So, for example, one of the programs I work with um, is music. Right. And music, particularly singing, playing music and singing have incredible positive impact on the brain. So what happens if in this in in one program that I've worked with and I wrote a book about rock to recovery? What happens if if the participants don't write their song or the song's not very good? Right. There's no there's no negative outcome. 
right? The greatest negative outcome is if someone doesn't participate and so they get none of the benefits, right? But who cares if the lyrics aren't going to win you a Grammy? You're in drug rehab, (laughs) right? But the positive side effects are tremendous. And you know this because all of us have had this experience. If you're having a bad day and you're in your car, say you're stuck in traffic, which I know you don't get too much traffic up in Alaska, but say you're stuck in traffic, right? (laughs) And you sing a song, right? You And you you do your own carpool karaoke. You feel better. Yep. We all do. It's a neurological response. So literally anyone with a brain, and I don't mean that ironically, I literally mean anyone with gray matter between their ears. If you sing badly, off tune, beautifully, it doesn't make any difference. Your brain doesn't know the difference. It starts dumping serotonin, oxytocin, and dopamine. And it lights up with all these feel-good chemicals. Also, the entire brain lights up when we sing. So this is a really simple but effective intervention that we can use when someone, say, with addiction or with trauma, starts having repetitive thoughts. Because what's the hallmark of addiction and trauma? It's that you're stuck, right? When I'm drinking, I am stuck. I'm thinking about drinking or drinking or getting over, you know, uh, uh, feeling sick from drinking, but I'm thinking about drinking. What we want to do is fire the brain in different ways so that we jolt it out of that pattern of thinking about drinking. Singing is a wonderful way to do that. And it can last, you know, from a few minutes to a few hours, but we'll have people who come in, write and record a song. And an hour later, they are, they're suicidal when they come in and they're on top of the world when they leave because their brains have dumped so many feel-good chemicals. It doesn't work yeah. quite as effectively for you and I who have a, a higher baseline, right? Our brains are mm-hmm. functioning better than someone who's, say, in drug rehab. But these are the kinds of therapeutics that on their own, uh, they're helpful, but they don't solve a problem. What we don't understand and what I wrote about in my first book, Ending Addiction for Good, is that when you use them together, there's a synergistic effect and they become greater than the sum of their parts. So when we use music and meditation and narrative and somatics, and somatics is very important, I think, especially for people with trauma, when we put these together, all of a sudden, the little things on their own that didn't work so well now have a cumulative effect, and we really get positive results. Yeah. Get real healing. Yeah. Very, very interesting. I, um, I didn't share this with you either. I actually just completed a trauma-sensitive heart math certification, um, which is bringing some of this, you know, it's, it's, I think so much of it is in the brain really, because, you know, we, we just get wired and if we're not producing the right chemicals or like you said, we're stuck in a loop, you know, we have to find a way to impact that, you know, whether you're dealing with addiction or trauma or just like the stress of life. Like, so what we're learning, yes, you're right. So what we're learning is that, that these things are, are stored or need to be affected in two places. The first Mm -hmm. is in the brain. And there's a simple uh, premise of neurology, what fires together, wires Wires together, together. right? So if I think about drinking all the time, where am I going to get a drink? Can I get off of work? It's 1020. I can't get out of here till 1040. It's now 1021, right? All that stuff. That 
alcoholic feedback loop becomes stronger and stronger. And what we want to do is we want to build something else, right? So that's why we want to fire in new ways. So that's issue number one are these feedback loops in the brain. And we know that it's a neurological problem rather than a substance problem. Because if the problem was the substance, when I separate you from the substance, right, detox, you should get better, right? That's like an allergy, right? Or, uh, uh, you know, if you you have anaphylaxis, right, because you ate a peanut, right, and you you start to die, right, we we remove Mm -hmm. all the peanut from you, or the venom from the snake bite or whatever, and you get better. But that doesn't happen with addiction, right? We remove you from the substance or the substance from you and you get worse. Yeah. That means there's something else going on. And that we believe is neurological. The other part, um, particularly for trauma is, you know, Vander Kolk's work, the body keeps the score that trauma is actually stored in the body. body. Yeah. And there's something um, I started to learn about this in graduate school um, with uh, shamans in Namibia, uh, traditional mm-hmm. healers in Namibia. I was invited to, to just watch them. And there's something that they call shaking medicine. And mm-hmm. if you see a bird, right, that just got away from a predator, it will go under a bush or a rock. It'll puff out all its feathers and it will tremble. It will shake. Right. And that actually moves that trauma through because birds don't have uh, a PTSD like humans right. do. Yeah. Right. Because they move that trauma out through their body by shaking. And so with the sun in Namibia, I had the opportunity to see how they would tremble and they have, you know, their their rituals and their stories for, you know, to ex- to explain how it works. But they explained it to me a, using mm-hmm. the bird example. And I'm like, oh, yeah. which is why somatics is so important for people who have trauma is to find where in the body. Cause I know for myself with my trauma, mm-hmm. I'm dissociative. I can tell, you know, I, I had therapists and they'd weep. I'm like, you don't get to cry. Like I just told you whatever. I can tell you what happened. Right. But I have no connection to those feelings. Well, that makes talk therapy ineffective. If I can't right. feel those feelings when I talk about it, we're wasting everybody's time. But in somatics, I learned how to actually be in my body and present. And that's what gets me out of that feedback loop of always being stuck in the past. Because another hallmark of trauma is I feel like the threat is imminent, even when it's right. not. So my father died when I was 22 years old, but I would 10 years later, feel him breathing on my neck. Like he's here. I know he's not here, but my body responds as if until I was able to work it through with somatics. Very cool. And so can you define somatics for those listening? Because I've had experiences, you know, where like, I just suddenly need to like move and shake. And that's essentially what this is. Like if you watch and all animals do it, actually they like shake it off. Yes. They literally comes from. That's where that phrase (laughs) comes from is shake it off. Right. So somatics is a body based form of healing. Mm -hmm. And essentially the idea is that trauma, emotion, whatever you want to call it, problematic feelings mostly. We don't usually get joy stuck in the body, right? <laughs> right. 
but these these traumas get lodged and they're stored physically stored in the body and that it's our responsibility first of all in healing to learn how to be embodied and second because I'd be like way back here like sort of watching from like I was not present in this form yeah and then to move those traumas through and if we don't we can get all sorts of illnesses I mean we talk about it with you know aces adverse childhood experiences right and they don't all have to be psychological traumas but um Mm -hmm. we see all sorts of illnesses develop because these experiences are stored in the body so we want to move them through and that's really I mean there's lots of other you know more academic definitions, but that's really what somatics is, is understanding soma, right? Body, Mm -hmm. right? Is that these experiences become, you know, trapped in the body and we want to move them out. Yeah. Which makes total sense. So for those listening that, you know, and this was me even as early as this year, even though I've been doing the work I do for a while, like I I had a coach who was actually like, well, where do you feel that in your body? Because I, you know, I'm very good at intellectualizing, analyzing. And I know most of the women who listen to the show are probably similar of like, we're really good at trying to sort out the problems in our head and we don't know how to even connect here. So do you have any recommendations of like how, how you start? (laughs) Yeah, it's just really hard. Like let's, let's just acknowledge it's really hard. So I work with someone with somatics and we do two things together. First of all, she asked me where I feel that. I'm like, I don't know. Uh-huh. I don't know what it's in my body. Like, uh, you know, so the first thing that I worked on for probably two years was just, can you feel, can you feel your body? Can you feel it? And I'm like, no, actually <laughs> I don't. <laughs> and so we do different exercises, you know, where I'd like, you know, poke myself and I'd be like, Okay, like I can feel that because this isn't threatening, right? I can feel that, right? right? But then it's like, you know, feel your thought. I'm like, "Mm, yeah, I don't actually feel anything, you know? So that's the first start. But I think it's acknowledging that it's hard. The other thing is I am not very good. I'm getting better, but I'm not very good at identifying my feelings. So I'll say to my practitioner, right, I'll say, you know, uh, I'm feeling something and, and I'll have her help me name it. Right. Uh, not sadness, definitely not grief, but something, you know, and she'll start, you know, giving me, you know, synonyms or, or, or different ideas. And I'll be like, yeah, maybe that Let me sit with that for a little while. Or she'll say, oh, I noticed something, you know, she'll, she'll mirror things back to me. She'll be like, I noticed this about you that you're, you know, I don't know waving your hand or something. I, you know, I can't think of something right now, but she'll say, why, why, why are you doing that? And I'll be like, um, oh, you know, or she'll be like, oh, yeah. you're tearing up. Let's not. Cause the, the big thing for me is I want to move on. Right. Mm-hmm. Just intellectual. Cause I'm smart. And that just is an advantage, right. For not feeling yeah. your feelings. Cause I'll just oh, yeah. smart my way through it. Right. I'll be like, I'm just mm-hmm. smart. Like, let's go. And she's like, no, no, wait a minute. I can see you're having some sort of feeling like let's slow down here and explore what that is. And so for me, it's a finding someone good to work with and B letting myself off the hook that, you know, like you said, we're professionals. We've been doing this for years. 
And that doesn't make me good at it. It just makes me empathetic to other people. And I have learned to be more patient with myself because I I actually saw this on TikTok the other day. <laughs> the the great reference of TikTok. Oh yeah, love it. But someone said that healing is not becoming you know the best of myself, but it's letting go of or working through or healing from my difficulties and deficiencies. And I loved that because it it took it takes the pressure off. I'm not yeah. becoming some guru. I'm not becoming some enlightened being. I am simply trying to be more present in my life and be gentler with people around me. That's really what healing is for me. And, you know, that I don't have to have these abrupt walls because of, you know, some traumatic experience. You know, years ago, I basically had no men in my life. I mean, if you were under 12 little boys, you know, people had kids, you know, some friends would have have husbands. Right. But they were always on the periphery. There were no men in my inner circle, you know, or old, old men, you know. Mm -hmm. And through this somatic work, I have been able to have a broader experience. I have friends who are men, you know, my, my friends, husbands aren't just on the, you know, like tolerated when they have happened to be in the room. Right. And so that's the growth. Yeah. That's the growth that if a plumber comes over, I'm not having a breakdown because there's, I'm alone with a guy in my house and I have to talk to my therapist for an hour and a half afterwards because there was a guy in my house. The plumber's not a threat. He's not a threat. And I know he's not a threat before I let him in the door. Because if I even smell a threat, you ain't coming in. Yeah. That's the healing. And that's what this does for us. So let yourself off the hook. It's hard. It's hard. And don't expect amazing, you know, overnight changes. Yeah, no, if I've learned anything from certifications I've done and learning I've done, and then, you know, my own journey, it's like, it's not overnight. And a lot of times, you know, what I've really struggled with, because we are smart, (laughs) it's like, it seems too easy. Like, I just have to, you know, pay attention to my body or, you know, just breathe. Like breathing is one of the ways I have and doing the heart math. It's very like heart, heart focused. So focusing on your heart while breathing, because it pulls you out of your head and into your body. And my intellectual side is like, oh, that's too easy, you know? But it's well, these little things that make a big difference. Listen, there's things are simple. What we say in the twelve step program is they're simple but not easy. Yeah, it's very simple. Mm-hmm. You feel you, you, you feel grumpy. Sing a song. I, I was at a conference the other day virtually. I was at a conference in Australia, and we sing "Row, Row, Row Your Boat." I come from the Girl Scouts. If I had been in person, we would have had a three part round and <laughs> harmonies and you know all things. And. Uh, at the end of the song, people are laughing. Yeah. I was the last speaker on the first day of the conference. People were tired. They wanted to go back to their rooms. There was a big dinner afterwards, right? There, you know, you know where that you're like, oh God, we're gonna uh, this crazy lady gonna make us sing a song, right? We're laughing right. at the end because 
these things have an impact. They matter. They do. And you think, wow, like, so I, 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 work a lot with drug rehabs and, and, and trauma treatment centers, mental health facilities, and so forth. And when we're creating a protocol, each individual thing there, you know, equine therapy, for example, is wonderful. Yeah. yeah. And people are like, you're going to feel better brushing a horse. Well, no, if that's all you did, no, you're not. Yeah. But these little things trigger biochemical and physical responses and cumulatively they make a difference so yeah simple but it's not easy because it's not easy for us to be present with our feelings right I don't know how to feel my feelings I learned that in a 12-step program and in therapy I learned how to tolerate feeling my feelings that's why I drink because when I when I first was drinking, right? When I'd stop, all my feelings would come up and it was all this trauma and overwhelm and craziness. And I was like, oh, I don't know what to do with it. Drinking helped. When I would drink, I would feel the index finger of my left hand with the fingers of my right hand. And when they felt, when my finger felt like wood, that's what I wanted. I wanted oblivion. I wanted to feel nothing. Now I kept yeah. drinking after that because I'm a good alcoholic and I drink until the liquor's gone or I pass out, but I wanted to feel nothing. So it's not going to be just a walk in the park to suddenly feel my feelings. And I have to say the scariest feelings are the positive ones. Because I have more experience with the negative ones. I know what terror feels like. I know what disgust feels like. I know what shame and guilt and remorse. I know what those feel like. I know what rage feels like. I have a little more experience managing those. Compliment me. I mean, I know to say thank you because I, you know, was taught, but to feel that. You know, like when I got my PhD, I was like, you know, people like, wow, you're people call me doctor. And I was like, well, isn't that weird? You know, yeah, isn't that weird? Very interesting. And I know everyone can relate, you know, no matter what most women I know suck at taking compliments. I'm actually part of a, a coaching group where we our leader was like all right you know everyone's gonna write in the message like how you view this person in in positive ways and then we had to actually read them out loud and it was really challenging it is challenging allow yourself to see you you, how other people see you right yeah well I've I've taken on it's a sort of thought experiment Einstein used to like to do thought experiments I take it in a Mm -hmm. different way with mental health and that's is if someone gives me a compliment or a criticism I try it on. Okay. I try it. I'm like, oh, how does that yeah. feel? Does that feel true? And usually the compliments do feel true, even if they feel mm-hmm. awkward, right? You're like, oh, I'm not used right. to wearing this coat, yeah. right? And the criticisms very often don't. And I, and I also do it with another person. So I'll do it with my with my therapist or I'll do it with a trusted friend and I'll be like, you know, this criticism was made of me. 
I was like, it doesn't feel true. And they're like, yeah, I don't see you like that either. So I get that confirmation from someone who will call bullshit, you know, like if I said, you know, like very often men in particular will say, you're, you're very aggressive. Mm -hmm. I'm like, am I aggressive? You know, I ask other people, am I aggressive? And, uh, one woman pointed out to me, she said, you actually interact with them, the men, exactly in the same way that they interact with you. Yeah. But from you, it's considered aggressive, especially because I have the letters after my name. So it comes with an authority. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm like, okay, so that's their issue. That's not Mm -hmm. my issue. That's not my issue. Because I want to do better. So I I, want to, you know, whatever it is, but I try, I try it on compliment or criticism. I try it on. Say, Hey, how does that, does that, does that feel like it it fits? Oh, it does. Then I can do better and I can make amends and I can do all sorts of things. Yeah. And I like that because it, it actually allows you to take kind of objective because I think a lot of times our initial reaction is to, you know, we may accept it especially a compliment, like, you know, we may accept it, but inside we're like, oh no, that's not true. Like, you know, they don't really know me. Whereas you're actually pausing to be like, hmm, how does that feel? I heard something I like very, that. I heard something very interesting that, that true imposters don't get imposter syndrome. <laughs> interesting. I can see that. Right. You yeah. Know, Cause if you're really running a con, yeah, you know, I, I you gonna... know, I've been, I've been doing this for, <laughs> for almost 20 years. Yeah, I uh, have award-winning books. My books have been bestsellers. I mean, all sorts of, you know, piled up, you know, I've Mm -hmm. won won an award from my alma mater, which means a lot to me to be recognized for my service from from my university. And still, when someone invites me to speak, I'm like, me? What? You know? Like yeah. the the lady who who was over vigorous scrambling the eggs this morning and some of the eggs spilled onto the like you know onto the stove like that that person you know and and I have to recognize I was like oh wait a minute you have some skills and experience here that that are important to share yeah and that's all you and and you know and that's that's big on two levels I think you know realizing even those who seem like they've have it all together on the outside like we're all we're all human oh right? gosh totally <laughs> and, and you know we all have a light and a short story to share and shine well and we all have listen we all have deficiencies yes we all have deficiencies like I was like this whole time since we logged on even before we started I was like how is her hair like so awesome right because mine's got all these frizzies today listen I'm lucky I have hair you know my hair hasn't fallen out right because a lot of people as you get older your hair starts to thin mine has started to thin a little bit I'm like I'm lucky I have hair I'm like ah I have frizzies you know how come I don't have it together that I don't have frizzies at you like you you know you know who cares I have hair it's enough. Great. It's a, you want to hear my my side of my hair story? Is yeah, yeah, my please. Hair never, never looks good. I normally have it up. I actually washed it this morning, so that's why it's down. But that's the only reason because I never think that I have good hair. Like everyone's hair is better than mine. Oh my god, that's so funny because I was yeah. I was like, her hair is particularly <laughs> fat. Of course, when mine is frizzy this morning because it's, it's gotten a little humid here today that yours is particularly fantastic. I'm like, that's, you know, but that's where we go. It's like, what yeah. can I pick at? 
you know, I love, I love the people who, you know, get up on stage and they're like, you know, I have to, you know, if the audience is a hundred people and they're, I have to pay attention to the 99 who like the show, not the one who's heckling me. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And that's, and that's what I've learned over the years to do, right? What I bring Mm -hmm. to you has nothing to do with the state of my hair today. And if the state of my hair today (laughs) bothers you, that's a you problem. Yeah. Right. I was at a, I was at a conference in Egypt, in Cairo a few years ago and speaking of hair. So people looked at my hair and they're like, you're Jewish. And I was like, yeah. And if that's a problem for you, there's the door. I'm going to give you some really good information. And if the fact that I am Jewish is, is problematic, then I, I don't know what to tell you. I'm here to share with you and your, and your people. And if that works for you, great. And if not, that's not a me problem. Yeah. And that's really something that I've focused on, especially being an overachieving woman. Mm-hmm. There are lots of people who say you need to, and I'm like, no, I don't need to dull it down and soften it and whatever, because that's the way you want to receive it. The only way I can be in the room sometimes is when they say, hey, uh, sweetheart, would you go get the coffee? No, no, I won't. You know, and I've been very fortunate. I belong to an organization called the Society for Consciousness Studies. I was a founding member of it. It's an invitation only or, or I don't know, there's some sort of process to get accepted into it. But when I originally sat on the board, it's, you know, Club of Budapest and, and Nobel nominated, you know, uh, and Deepak Chopra and me. This is who was initially, you know, okay. in the group, right? <laughs> and uh, I'm like, how did I get in here? You know, like, and, and sometimes I have to be honest, sometimes the things they talk about, because they're talking about consciousness on a theoretical level. Right. And when they bring the, the physics and the math in, I'm like, Ooh, mm-hmm. kind of losing me here, boys. Mm-hmm. But they love the, that I take this to an applied level. I'm like, okay, I get yeah. what you're talking about. Let's take this out into the world. But they recognize with the exception of Deepak that they're a bunch of old white men. Mm-hmm. And when I said um, for our first conference, I was like, I can't be the only woman. (laughs) There were no people of color. I was like, we have to do better. And you know what? They did better Good, because they just needed someone to point out what they were missing. So, but I've also been, you know, I've also been privileged in the sense of they were like, okay, we have to make sure that we don't ask her to go get the coffee even though I'm probably the most able-bodied of the group. And so, you know, because a lot of them are kind of old. So it would be normal to ask the youngest one in the room. And, you know, Mm -hmm. they're like, no, she's, she's a woman. She's not a token. She's here, you know? And so I search out those kinds of relationships on purpose. That's awesome. And I think that brings up, you know, we've been going a while, but I kind of want to go here with you too, because you've done some work in the indigenous world. And yes. we, we were talking a little bit about that yes. beforehand because my husband's Alaska native and a lot of the women that I've worked with are Alaska native. And, you know, where I was going with this is like so much of how we interact with each other in the world. It's like a lot of us don't even notice it. I don't think like, you know, 
old white no. men don't really notice that they're in a group of old white men. Like, you know, same with native and addition, indigenous populations. Like there's so much that's just generationally passed down. Sure. And then it's like elevating the level of consciousness. I've been working through a PhD program that's based in quantum physics. So, you know, I won't go there with you, but I love that you apply it because I've been studying it for like three years and I'm still like, I don't understand most of it, but you know, it's, um, so how do we, you know, bring all this knowledge of, of trauma and kind of the things that you figured out and start to transform and shift some of that just like, you know, cultural stuff that we've all inherited. That's a lot of it's rooted in trauma and in Right. So I think the first stuff. thing that we have to do is we have to really talk about decolonizing mental health care. Yeah. Because this idea that, you know, and, and this comes from my tradition, right? Sigmund Ford's Jewish, mm-hmm. that we're going to sit down across from one another and mm-hmm. talk about these old experiences, right? That is right. a particular worldview. Mm-hmm that this has value and this is what we do. And it does have value for certain things. I don't think it's really great, that great for trauma, but I, you know, it does have value for certain things. And so one is we have to be aware that we all work from a particular ontology, a particular worldview. And I have had the good fortune to travel a lot And when I was in college, I did two semesters abroad. I did one in India and one in Kenya. And I got to see how people, very early in life, how people live from other worldviews. And so just accepting that other ways of being in the world exist I think is 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 important and that this psychotherapeutic model this western psychotherapeutic model is the best or the only one is just a fallacy that's just straight up untrue and at this conference um that I was telling you about in Cairo it was um during the Syrian refugee crisis in Western Europe, when Syrians were fleeing en masse into Western Europe. And I gave a plea. I said, you guys, we need Arabic speaking, culturally competent mental health professionals to come to Europe. And uh, it's okay, do what you need to do <laughs> to come to Europe. Oh, I love it puppy um and to help with this crisis because we can't though the white western english speaking mental health professional does not have the cultural competence to really help these individuals so first of all understanding that i went to a therapist um who had all the credentials for trauma and i said to her early in our session i went to her once and I said, I don't say Kaddish for my father's yard site. And then proceeded to have to explain to her what Kaddish and yard site and why it's important and blah, blah, blah for the whole rest of the session. I never went to her again. So we need to open what mental health care looks like to include non-white, non-Western ways of being. When I was 17 years old, I was a a senior in high school and I was invited, I was a 
assistant leader for the girl, a Girl Scout troop. And I was invited to a powwow by the Siletz tribe down in Oregon. And I, you know, hung back, you know, I was a visitor there, even though I was invited there, like you can dance. And I was like, yeah, kind of watching, you know, seeing what's going on. And a woman, she saw me, right? She saw my trauma. She got who I was. She invited me to drum at her drum, right? With her people. And, and I mean, that's 33 years ago. And I am still affected by that, right? That she brought me in and it was so meaningful to be seen and to be included. Now, as a professional, I also see, I'm like, there is something to cultural connection. So yeah. one of the reasons that I created the Institute for uh, Complementary and Indigenous Mental Health Research is not because I do mental health, uh, Indigenous mental health research. I do not. But because those old white men held the door open for me and said, come on, sweetheart, you belong here. I wanted to create a place to say, I recognize that my way of being is not the only one. And that you all and indigenous incorporates a lot of different kinds of groups of people. You all deserve a seat at the table and your worldview matters. So, for example, I don't bring Western uh, music programs to indigenous communities. I certainly give them my book so that they can see the research around music. And and I think that's important to share. Yeah. Um, because one of the things indigenous groups have problems with is funding, right? Mm-hmm. So if I can give you, here's the research that is going to entice funders to fund your program. Right. But I don't bring that in because indigenous groups have their own music programs. They have their own musical traditions. Now, if they said to me, hey, doc, we want to have your, your music program, I'd say, well, here's who you contact and here's how you bring it in and so on and so forth. But I think that without under, if trauma is related to race or ethnicity, particularly if it's generational, I'm Jewish. I know what that looks like. It's not the same as indigenous. You know, we don't have exactly the same history, but you want to talk about, you know, arguably the most hated group in the world, that'd be mine. You know? Yeah. You could make that argument. So if you have something like, you know, the the indigenous schools, right? Mm-hmm. That we've had both in, in, in Canada and in the United States. If you talk about genocide, which I think is an appropriate term when you talk yeah. about dozens of indigenous groups in North America. You know, when you talk about disenfranchisement, I am terrified about what seems to be happening in the courts and the stripping of native rights. When you talk about these things, I think that it is foolish 
and this is what this is what we professionals on the whole do to say, all right, well, we'll just bring in some psychotherapists and you can talk to them. No, there has to be when you have cultural traumas like that, even though traumas are also individual, when you have cultural traumas like that, then there there have to be, I think, by definition, cultural solutions. Mm -hmm. You know, and we talk about, you know, epigenetics, right? How our our gene responses change. You know, what one of the things that I find interesting is there, it was believed that Jews did not become addicts or alcoholics. Hmm. But two generations post-Holocaust, there are a large number of about the same as as the general population, just the general population, but right. from zero to well, why is that? Well, one of the theories, and this is a theory, but one of the theories is that epigenetics create because alcohol works to numb my feelings, right? Mm-hmm. That because of the cultural trauma, that we see a, a an increase in the rate of addiction. Well. Again, this is a theory. There's not, I can't say that this is fact, but you see higher levels of, of alcoholism in indigenous cultures. You see it in the Irish, right? Who have been, you know, just traumatized and, and under the boot of the English for, you know, how many hundreds and hundreds of years. You see increased rates. It And so, you know, another theory is that it's poverty, that you see that, you know, one of the greatest indicators of, of addiction is not is not uh, uh, ethnicity or, or race, but it, it's actually poverty. There are some problems with both of these theories, but mm. I think that to think that there isn't, that cultural integrity and pride isn't at least part of the solution, I think that's I think that's wrong thinking on the part of the professional. And yeah. I don't think that there's anything in Western, right, dominant mental health research that is so groundbreaking. It's not like what we do is like giving insulin to a diabetic. It's much more of an art than a science. It's about relationships between people. And so you have to have practitioners who can relate. Yeah. They have to be able to relate. Does, does that mean that you have to be a, uh, a, a Native American psychotherapist? No, because I don't think you have to be a psychotherapist to help people. And I think there is a lot of wisdom in traditional activities, and I use that word very broadly, community-based activities that I believe, and this is, again, why I have the Institute, should be and could be publicly funded as mental health programming. And I think that's where that solution lies, is not because the West believes, the American government, the U.S. government believes that the, the white doctors that we bring in through, you know, the Indian Health Service and whatever, that we're going to give you this, you know, the same thing, which, of course, it's underfunded, but we're going to give you the same thing that we give to whoever, you know, Joe Schmo in, in Baltimore. And that is erroneous thinking. 
This is not penicillin that we're giving out. There has to be that therapeutic relationship. And I'll tell you, you know, even though I've found a very good somatic practitioner, my recovery came largely from a community of men who showed me, we're not going to hurt you. And I had both of those at the same time. Yeah. I had someone who helped me to move through the feelings. Mm -hmm. And I had all these men around me who were like, not only are we not going to hurt you, but if someone tried to get near you, they could not. I was at a rock concert and we were at the red carpet. And I hate doing the red carpet because they take pictures and they're like, you know, they're like, oh, doc, you're, you're, you know, you're the brains. I was like, they're not taking pictures of my brains, boys, you know, and I'm looking back and there's literally like supermodels behind me. I'm like, great. Just where, you know, those, these are my, these are my, you know, these are my deficiencies. Right. And I was like, and, you know, like, you know, there's predators everywhere. And they're like, look at yourself. I was literally the only woman standing in a group of 14 men who had surrounded me. Nobody was getting through. It was going to hurt yeah. me. That's, and, and I got in that moment, I was like, wait a minute, I'm safe here. Not all men are predators. My dad is dead for 25 years at this point, right? Like yeah. all these things came together. We do not get better. We do not recover alone. You know, there's a, yeah. there's a, a, a saying that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. It's not abstinence. It's connection. Mm. I can recover in connection. I cannot on my own. And so the real challenge for anyone who wants to see, I want to see everybody have be- better mental health. Right. I, 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 don't, yeah. I don't care what community you belong to. Yeah. It's having solid, vibrant communities to which to belong. So if the community is being gutted and your children are taken away and, you know, don't come back and not allowed to speak their own language and not allowed to learn how to do the dances and the rituals of, of your community and not then how how could how can we have good mental health i could bring you the best the yeah. best mental health providers i'll bring them all to you it's not going to make any difference we have to build vibrant communities and yeah. that's what i try to do with my institute is open the door and say you self define community xyz what you want And I'm going to open the door so that you can come through and have access to the same resources that I do. That's what I have to give is access to resources. You know, I had I I was at a a conference. They were like an indigenous person's conference. And they're like, well, you're not indigenous. And I was like, nope. And they're like, would you do you have an indigenous partner? I said, I don't. Um, And I wasn't talking about indigenous anything. I was talking about something very um, I was talking about music. I said, but I would love, I said, do you have a student? Let's, I'll bring in a student. I'll mentor them. I'll let them give, you know, at least half of the presentation. Like let's give people opportunities. My, my interns in South Africa, 
Why? Because I, I found a woman who wanted opportunities. Great. Okay. Come on. Let's do this. I want to open yeah. doors for people because you, I don't yeah. know what you need. Right. I have no idea. I can, I, I do research I, and I can tell you what the research says and I can tell you how to, how we apply it and how it's been applied in different settings. And then you need to take, you know, what works for you. Yeah, that's huge. It's almost, I keep thinking about, um, I was a comparative literature major. So one of the things that we did was look at, you know, how a text, ex- like you, there's literal translation, you know, word for word. And then there's how a text exists or what it, what it meant to the culture and in the time and using that as, and so that's more what you're getting into is like, you know, culturally, how can we take these tools and use what we need to, but still honor who we are, where we came from and not try to fit into someone else's box. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I can tell you like the basics about music, right? Singing mm-hmm. again, that's like penicillin. If you have a brain, if you have a body, these things are going to work a certain way, but what does that look like? What does that look like? That's, that's for, for you to decide. And there's also, you know, this idea, I love that comparative literature because there's this idea, I work a lot with story. Because whatever you tell yourself is true is true. My father said once when I was a very little girl, he's like, I don't want to have sex with fat women. Mm-hmm. Well, that's very good information when you're, you know, seven years old and 50 pounds. Oh, well, the solution to this is to be fat, isn't it? Right. I started eating every Twinkie I could get my hands on. Well, when I'm now an adult, my father's dead and I weigh 325 pounds. Because I the bigger I am, the safer I am. I really wanted to be such an um, immovable mass of flesh, right, that no one could get to the goods. Right. Sort of the, the, the thought process, if I was honest with myself. And then one day someone said to me, a, a, a male friend of mine said to me, he's like, that's not true. Like, and oh, actually, that's not true. First of all, my my father had sex with lots of heavy women, and uh, it's not true. Yeah, think about my six hundred pound life. A lot of those people are married. Some of them have sex. Some of them don't, right? Because of their size. But I'm I'm like, wait, wait a minute. Heavy people get assaulted all the time, and. I dropped 75 pounds and I've kept it off for four years now. Just fell off. I didn't do anything different with right. my diet. I didn't do anything because I had a different belief. And yeah. so if we can change these narratives, but I cannot, as a mental health professional, it is wrong of me to superimpose my worldview on you. You tell me what you want, what your problems are. I can tell you what I've done, right? Because I've been through it. And I can tell you what different resources are. I'm much better at giving referrals than anything else, right? Because I just happen to know a lot of people. I'm like, okay, you want this and this and that. Here are the people who are doing that. Or a community will come to me and say, okay, these are the problems that we're having. These are the resources that we have. All right, how can we boost these? That's my job. That's my job. 
because you know, and, and you is not just an indigenous person or a woman or a, a person of a certain age, you, any human being, you know what you need to heal. It's about all of the rest of us providing a container so you're safe to do it and the resources that are necessary. Yeah. That's, that's our job. That's our job. I love it. So this has been so good. We've gone like way over, (laughs) but I really appreciate it. Um, So for, for those listening that this is resonating with them, you know, no matter how, you, as you put, identify in the world is for anybody. How can they get in touch with you? Like what, what are steps to connect with you? So I have a website, which is constantsharf.com. I am on all the socials at Dr. Sharf. Um, that's TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and uh, <laughs> all the things, all the things, Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Consharf PhD. Um, so yeah, just look, just look for me. And um, I'm around uh, on, on the internet, on the airwaves, on the podcasts, all the, all the places. So um, I also have uh, several books uh, and they're all available on Amazon. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and just, you know, this is a conversation that needs to be heard and needs to be had. So yeah. I really and I, I just, you. I just want people to know you can heal. Yeah. You can heal, you know, and it does, it's, it's not going to be easy and it's not going to look like what you think it's going to look like, but your life <laughs> can change if you, if you believe that you can, that's all, that's all it takes. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you again. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Selfless Syndrome Show. I truly couldn't make the show if it weren't for you, my amazing, lovely, and loyal listener. I so appreciate the emails, the shout outs, the shares, and the reviews, all of which inspire me and motivate me to keep coming back to the mic week after week in order to provide high quality content that helps you find that elusive thing called balance and really build the life, career, and body you are worthy of. I have one little request. If you have benefited from this show in any way, I would so appreciate it if you would go to iTunes and review the show. You can leave a five-star review, leave an honest review. This really helps us get in front of more amazing listeners just like you and keep growing our mission to help women leaders around the world build the life, career, and body they are worthy of. Thank you.